Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 57, the book of Matthew, chapter 16, continued. You know, I began the previous lesson with the rhetorical question, who is Yeshua? What is Yeshua? You know, it's such a complex, complex issue that as we go through this chapter, I'm going to continue to weave in some, some needed background about the historical Jesus so that we can better grasp, grasp Him <laughs> as the very real Jewish person that He was. Which, of course, is the context for how he acted and what he taught. And from this we should be better equipped to extract his intended meaning for what he said, and as we endeavor then to apply that to our lives. Now as we study Matthew's Gospel, what is becoming more fully apparent to us in retrospect, but only barely apparent to the, the crowds, even to His own disciples of His day, is that although Yeshua can be compared to a prophet of old, He's greater than any. And although He bears similar attributes to John the Baptist, He's far more. What is slowly beginning to emerge before us but again almost not at all noticed yet by the Jews of the Holy Land, is that the centuries-old Messianic aspiration so valued and hoped for by the Jewish people and the completion of those promises by God to the house of David are at hand in the person of Yeshua from Nazareth. However, we only get the truest picture of the Messiah if we chart a course to rediscover the historical Yeshua, not the popularized version, so prevalent within Christianity today and really for the last 18 centuries. Now, I'm neither the first nor the only biblical commentator to try to unpack who the historical Jesus was. Now, it is interesting that especially from the evangelical side of Christianity. There has been somewhat of a recent backlash against approaching Him this way. Speaking of the historical, Jesus can produce a, a grimace of disapproval. See, this comes not so much from the academic side of the church as much from the church government side, the side of the church that consists of those who run entire denominations and of pastors of their many congregations. Some of them seem to think that to try to recover this historical knowledge of Christ humanizes Him in too great a proportion to His spiritual, godly nature, and so it is inappropriate and it diminishes Him. Others think that it leads to focusing too much on his Jewishness and thus seeks to advance Judaism and thus legalism. 
Now, as I look back at the more than half century of Christianity that I have been given the grace to personally witness within several denominational settings, from the theologically liberal to the conservative, it's my observation that it is the lack of highlighting Yeshua's humanness that's out of proportion in the church's portrayal of Him. The lack of it. This leads to spiritualizing, which is just a lofty way of saying allegorizing, of His person, of His instruction, and all this can only lead to misunderstanding. Yet when we do attempt to recover His humanness, we inevitably come face to face with His obvious Jewishness that is especially front and center in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. Now, I don't think I have to point out that in general, the Jewish Christ is not something the institutional church wishes to confront. Because for 1800 plus years, there has been a concerted effort to make Jesus a non-Jewish, only sort of human, generic or universal man, who is the Savior for a Gentile Christian faith. This is so much the case that in some, and thankfully only a few, circles that there is a serious thought that perhaps the God-man, Jesus, that walked on the earth in the Holy Land in the first century was more apparition than actual flesh and blood. Now in our last lesson, Yeshua had departed the area of Magadan on the Sea of Galilee and he'd gone inland and then north to a place near Mount Hermon that's called Caesarea Philippi, obviously a Roman name. And there he asks an interesting question of his disciples, and I'm assuming that these were some or maybe all of the twelve disciples, and he asks, who are people saying the Son of Man is? See, I wonder how this question struck his disciples. And so considering what we know about what seems to be their rather low level of spiritual understanding and awareness at this time, I speculate that to them this would have seemed far less of a, of a leading question that Yeshua hoped might nudge them towards a deeper searching about His true identity, and instead by their answer to Him, seems they took it as a rather straightforward fact-finding question by their Master, uh, kind of an opinion poll about the people that formed the crowds, if you would. So they respond matter-of-factly. They say that some think Jesus might be a revivified John the Baptist. Others, the returned Elijah, still others, one of the prophets from ancient times, most likely Jeremiah. Now, by now we have become used to hearing 
Yeshua referred to himself as the Son of Man, a, a title he clearly liked. And I have explained, <clears throat> I have explained that in general, this was usually meant to connect him to Daniel's one like a son of man that comes in the clouds for the final harvest on Judgment Day. Yet, there is no doubt he did not always mean to indicate the end times son of man. It seems to have been a rather favorite phrase that he enjoyed using to instruct, to reveal, to speak, even in casual conversation. <clears throat> and as I have said, he's a complicated person to explain, even before you throw the God element into it. Now there seems to be <clears throat> three different meanings and contexts in which Yeshua speaks of Himself as the Son of Man. But there's also three groups of sayings that we find in the Gospels, and especially in Matthew, about the Son of Man. First, the three groups of sayings. The first group is when there is a reference to the latter day Son of Man, a future Son of Man. The second group envisions and references the Son of Man's experiences, His experiences of agony and crucifixion and then resurrection. And then the third group points out the Son of Man's works among the Jewish people in the present tense. So as it was happening then. <clears throat> now the first of the three different meanings of Jesus when He employed the term Son of Man about Himself is the most prominent one. It is as the end times cosmic judge, the Divine One who sits in heaven at the Father's right hand. In this use, we need to think of the term Son of Man as a proper title, you know, that begins like with capital letters. The second meaning is when he's speaking in a sort of third person fashion about himself. So we need to envision the term Son of Man less as a title, but rather as a culturally modest way of referring to oneself. And such modesty was the norm for within first century Jewish society. The third is when Yeshua uses Son of Man simply as meaning human being. And in fact, human being is the meaning of the Hebrew Benadam, which no doubt is what's being expressed. Essentially, it's just another way of saying I or me. Most times, it's fairly easy to discern which of these three meanings or senses of Son of Man that Christ intends. Sometimes it's a little more hazy. Now, while there's no universal consensus about it, in our current passage, Matthew 16, 13, I think it's most likely that Jesus means it in that third sense. He just means 
who are the people saying that I am? That is, who He is in the context of His humanness. Now one of the things we must never overlook with Yeshua is His solidarity and camaraderie with His fellow humans, His fellow Jewish humans. This was taken for granted by the people who saw Him or interacted with Him as a Sadiq, hailing from Nazareth. He was so human and ordinary in appearance that He was rejected by the residents of His own hometown who knew Him and His family very well when He attempted to teach them. Even in His suffering on the way to the cross, His agony and death upon it, it hammers home to us not only His human vulnerability, but also that He was in no way immune from the severe hand of Roman punishment just as with the rest of Jewish society. So in verse 15 of Matthew chapter 16, after asking His disciples who the people that formed the crowds think, the crowds that He healed think that He was, He now asks His disciples to speak up and say who they think He is. Talk about being put on the spot. Okay, let's reread from Matthew 16, 15 onward. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. We'll start reading at verse 15. But you, he said to them, who do you say I am? Shimon Kepha, Simon Peter, answered, you are the Mashiach. The Messiah, the Son of the Living God. Shimon bar Yochanan said, Yeshua said to him, How blessed you are! For no human being revealed this to you. No, it was my Father in heaven. I also tell you this you are Kepha, which means rock, and on this rock I will build my community, and the gates of Sheol will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you prohibit on earth will be prohibited in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Then he warned the Talmudim, his disciples, not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Now, from that time on, Yeshua had been making it clear to his disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem and endure much suffering at the hands of the elders, the head Kohanim, the head priest, the high priest, and the Torah teachers, and that he had to be put to death but that on the third day he had to be raised to life. Kepha took him aside, Peter took him aside, and he began rebuking him. Heaven be merciful, Lord, by no means will this happen to you. But Yeshua turned his back on Kepha, saying, Get behind me, Satan. You're an obstacle in my path because your thinking is from a human perspective, not from God's perspective. Then Yeshua told his Talmudim, If anyone wants to come after me, let him say no to himself. Take up his execution stake and keep following me. For whoever wants to save his own life will destroy it, but whoever destroys his life for my sake will find it. Who 
good will it do someone if he gains the whole world but forfeits his life? Or what can a person give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man will come in his Father's glory with his angels. Then he will repay everyone according to his conduct. Yes, I tell you, there are some people standing here who will not experience death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. So the effervescent and impulsive disciple Peter, he's the first to answer. You know that kid in the classroom that goes, ooh, 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 me, me? That was Peter. He says, you are the Mashiach. You're the anointed one. The Son of the Living God. You know what? Peter got it right. He was right. And yet, the reason that I spoke to you last time about how first century Jewish people thought about what the person and actions of the expected Messiah might be helps to reveal that Peter was no different from them in the lens through which he viewed the Messiah Yeshua, who's standing right in front of him. Because Peter now thought of Yeshua as Messiah. So he would have fully expected Yeshua to form an army, confront Rome, win, and install himself as the king of an independent and reborn Israel. In fact, as Yeshua began explaining the horrendous things that were going to happen to him in the coming months, things that went against huh, everything the Jewish people believed their Messiah would do, Peter essentially stood up and shouted, No way! No way, man! This is not happening to you. Can't happen to you. See, understanding for the disciples is still coming in baby steps. So, Yeshua rebuked Peter for his continued lack of understanding and his stubbornness in hanging on to centuries-old traditions about the Messiah. But before Peter refuses to accept Yeshua's mission and his destiny, Yeshua says something so very important for us to hear. He says this in Matthew 16, verse 17. Shimon bar Yochanan, Simon, son of John. Yeshua said to him, How blessed you are, for no human being revealed this to you. No, it was my Father in heaven. See, now before we look closely at this, I want to point out that the complete Jewish Bible use of the term human being in this verse is a poor translation. Almost all other English translations rightly say flesh and blood. And this is the literal translation of the Greek. Now we can argue that flesh and blood means human being, but the reason that the term human being ought not be used here is precisely because the term son of man in Hebrew also means human being. And as much as Christ calls Himself Son of Man, that's not here. That's not the intent. So Yeshua says that flesh and blood, 
In other words, persons, people, did not reveal the identity of Yeshua as Israel's Mashiach, Messiah to Peter. Even more, flesh and blood stands in opposition to the term divine. That is, flesh and blood meant in Jewish thought by and through humans. More and more scholarly terms, human agency. However, in a certain sense, Christ must be including Himself as among those flesh and blood human agents in the present context because it was His instruction that the disciples had been receiving for the past several months. So it's not instruction from Him or any other human being, but rather it is the inspiration from the Father that has revealed this truth to Peter. So we continue to learn here that Yeshua has not told anyone at this point that He is the Messiah. The way Peter learned of it was through spiritual inspiration from heaven, specifically from the Father. Now one of the great mysteries that Bible scholars wrestle with is why Jesus wasn't more forthcoming about His status as the Messiah. Even though in Matthew's Gospel we might call this particular scene a pronouncement story, that is a story pronouncing He's the Messiah, Jesus really only lauds Peter for Peter's realization of it. Jesus never directly says about Himself, I'm the Messiah. He always seemed reluctant, even elusive about the subject, but clearly He threw this question about His identity out to His disciples as a group. He wanted to see if any of them had received this heavenly revelation, and it turns out Peter had. We find a very abbreviated version of this same story in Mark chapter 8, but in neither version do we read of any of the other disciples chiming in and agreeing with Peter at this point. What do we take from this? First it is that while a human, a person, no doubt spoke the gospel of salvation in Christ to us, we only came to believe when God inspired us to believe. In turn, as Christ's followers, we are commanded to evangelize and tell others about Jesus, even though those we encounter will never understand or internalize the message of salvation until the Father does a work in them and He reveals Himself to them. Not even Yeshua's personal presence with His disciples or with the crowds had accomplished this. Second is that God reveals Himself to whomever He will. I I can't fathom how He chooses, but He does choose. The Bible sometimes uses the term elects to label this mysterious divine process of choosing. 
If it was entirely up to us, then it wouldn't be an act of God. So if you trust Christ, if you trust Christ, thank the Father. Thank the Father and understand what a great privilege has been afforded to you because you were chosen. Notice something else. Yeshua does not say it was the Father in heaven, but rather my Father in heaven who did the revealing to Peter. My Father. See, this subtle difference sends a message. Yeshua again implicates His relationship with the Father is something far greater than it is for all other humans. In the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus instructs us to pray to our Father, our Father. That is, God as the universal Father of us all by means of a common human connection through the created Adam and a common spiritual connection through the because it's the Father that breathes the breath of life into us all. But here in Matthew 16, verse 17, Yeshua expresses this close, unique, singular, familial relationship that can only be taken to mean that He is virtually related to God. It speaks of Yeshua's divine nature. God confirms this by referring to Yeshua as His only begotten Son. So Yeshua speaks in terms of My Father, which essentially verifies Peter's statement about Him. And yet, just how deep did this take root in Peter? I mean, what did it mean to him when he said those words? Later on, we find out it sure wasn't enough to keep him from denying Jesus not once but three times. Even so, Yeshua confers a blessing upon Peter. This is no small thing. There is no record of him giving a blessing to another individual disciple. It is just another confirmation to Peter and to us that Peter got it right. Then in verse 18, Yeshua gives Peter a new name. Now, such renaming is not unheard of in the Bible, but it is also God that does the renaming. And it's usually because of some kind of a spiritual milestone or a status change that's occurring within that person. Avram became Avraham. Yaakov, Jacob, became Israel. Now Shimon becomes Kepha. Kepha is Hebrew for the Greek word Petrus. Peter is the English translation of both Kepha and Petrus. The reason for this choice of name is that Petrus is a form of Petra, and Petra means 
rock, or stone. It is Yeshua who assigns Shimon the new name, again implying His divine authority to do so. Interestingly, Shimon was not the first to be called a rock in the Bible. In Isaiah 51.1, Listen to me, you pursuers of justice, you who seek Adonai. Consider the rock from which you were cut, the quarry from which you were dug. Consider Avraham your father, and Sarah who gave birth to you, in that I called him when he was only one person, then blessed him and made him many. So we find that many centuries before Peter, Avraham is seen as a rock from which others will be cut. It's a metaphor for those who will seek God. Peter is put into a similar category in some respects by Yeshua. That is, Peter is a rock or a stone in the sense of his new name being used as a metaphor for those who seek God, but also now is inclusive of the all-important reality that God's Son has arrived and He is the Messiah. Now, I'm going to say something that I really would rather not say, but I want you to know that this applies to all Christianity in many ways. I'm not going to spend a lot of time with it, but I do need, I'm compelled to mention that the Catholic Church's claim that Peter as the rock was the first pope has no biblical merit. just doesn't. It's a religious invention. It's also a good way to remove Peter from his Jewish context and then thrust him into a new Gentile role, because if the church truly regarded Peter as a rock out of which their faith would be cut, boy, have they missed it entirely. Peter was thoroughly a Jew, and there's not a hint of the Jewish faith in Catholicism. They have as virtually all other branches of Christianity. This is not unique to Catholicism. All branches of Christianity have divorced Peter from his Jewishness and turned him into a Christian, haven't they? Meaning a Gentile. Just as they've done to Jesus, just as they've done to other New Testament Bible characters. Christianity in general, Catholic, Protestant, doesn't matter, has played fast and loose with these words about Peter that were uttered by Jesus. Because he says in Matthew 16, 18, on this rock, I will build my community, and the gates of Sheol will not overcome it. Now, while the complete Jewish Bible says, on this rock I'll build my community, nearly all other English versions say, on this rock I will build my church. The Greek word that the English words community and church are both being translated from is ecclesia. Every credible Greek lexicon says that it is a generic term that means some type of assembly or congregation of people. Now, community may be a better choice of words than church, 
but it still veers away from the straightforward concept of being the generic, very broad term that it is. Church, as it came to mean only a century or two after Christ's time, is a new religious organization of, by, and for Gentiles. A few lessons ago, I delved heavily into the term the church and explained that it's a label and also what that label rapidly came to mean and still means. It came to mean an organized institution of Gentile believers that created and hold to a set of man-made doctrines that dismiss the very same scriptures from the Bible that Jesus often used to explain His presence and His purpose. The Old Testament, the Torah and the Prophets. The church also includes this strong concept of it being a special building, built to look a certain way. It requires Jewish exclusion, unless a Jew disavows most elements of his or her Jewishness. And you know what? Sometimes Jews are excluded even if they want to convert. It also means an organization whose faith doctrines are built mostly upon the supposed sayings of Paul, far less those of Jesus. Therefore, with that understanding of what the word church predominantly means in our modern English vocabulary and has meant, by the way, for nearly two millennia, I reject. So should you. The notion that we ought to include it here as properly communicating what Yeshua meant or envisioned by what he said to Peter. After all, just a few sentences earlier, he said he was only here for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He didn't come to form a new religion for Gentiles. Now, David Stern himself. A Jewish disciple of Yeshua puts it this way in his commentary on Matthew. Unlike the term church, ecclesia never refers to an institution or to a building. Exactly. Ecclesia simply means the collection of people who understand and accept Yeshua for who He is. And when Yeshua says to Peter that the gates of Hades Sheol in the complete Jewish Bible, which again is not a correct translation, will not prevail against it. It is the ecclesia, the collection of Christ's followers. It means that Satan and whomever on earth he manages to convince to come against the followers of Christ are not going to be victorious in the end. There's little doubt that being in Caesarea Philippi had much to do with Yeshua choosing those particular words. See, because it was a pagan site that was dedicated to the worship of the god Pan. And it was believed by some that this mysterious flow of water that came from deep underground in, in a grotto there, you can visit it to this day, 
was coming from the underworld, from Hades. So more in context with the way Peter and the disciples would have taken Yeshua's words, it was that pagan religions such as Pan worship would not overtake and destroy the fledgling groups of faithful followers of Yeshua. Now on another mini detour, I'd like to add this note about who Yeshua is. He was not the revolutionary as He is regularly painted. And by the way, neither am I. Rather, He was a reformer. Yeshua did not come to destroy the ancient Hebrew faith as practiced by the Jews of His day, and then Stalin-like create out of the rubble of its destruction a whole new religion that revolved around Him. Rather, He came to rehabilitate and to breathe new life into the long-existing Jewish faith such that those traditions of the elders that had become such a needless burden upon the people, and that in many cases had turned the Word of God on its head, would be removed and be replaced with biblical truth as it was originally given to them. And part of this process included ex- uh, exposing these ruthless, shameful, illegitimate high priest office and its organization that used the all-important temple of the God of Israel to make a fine art of fleecing the naive flock for their personal gain. See, in the Gospel of Matthew we see this natural tension building between the Pharisees and Sadducees versus Yeshua, just for this reason. They were polar opposites. There was no middle ground. The Pharisees and Sadducees didn't fear He was going to go form a new faith. They feared He was going to ruin their lucrative and powerful operations that weighed heavy on the common folk. In reality, Yeshua didn't even come to destroy these corrupt Jewish religious institutions. Rather, His words and His actions were meant to convince the Jewish populace of the Holy Land that He was the culmination of all they had hoped for that was contained within their ancient Hebrew faith, a faith that itself was built upon the covenants that God had made with their Israelite ancestors, covenants that had been steadily pushed aside. Christ didn't trash the Jewish institutions. He trashed those who ran them. He trashed those who corrupted them. In verse 19, Yeshua says, rather verse 19, Yeshua says, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you prohibit on earth will be prohibited in heaven. Whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Jesus is still talking to Peter, and He states that He's going to give to Peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Then He speaks of prohibiting and permitting. Now, first of all, we must notice that Peter is not receiving the keys to the kingdom of heaven, as though he's receiving the key to a lock. 
Rather, he's re rather it's the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Explain that nuance in a minute. So it's not that Peter has been given the keys that allow or turn away those who can enter the kingdom of heaven. Rather, it is that the keys represent a certain level of power and authority, but to what end? That's what gets stated next. It's the power and the authority to prohibit and to permit. Okay. To help us understand what that means, recall that Jesus favored quoting from the prophet Isaiah, loved quoting Isaiah. Here's a section of Isaiah chapter 22. This is going to be from verses 15 through 23. Thus says Adonai Elohim Sefaot, Go and find that steward Shebna, the administrator of the palace, and ask him, What do you own here? Who gave you the right to cut yourself a tomb here? Why do you get such an eminent tomb? Why are you carving a resting place for yourself in the rock? Look, strong man, Adonai is about to throw you out. He will grab you, roll you up, toss you around like a ball in the open country. There you will die with your fancy chariots. You disgrace your master's palace. I will remove you from your office. I will snatch you from your post. And when that day comes, I'll summon my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will dress him in your robe. I will gird him with your sash of office, invest him with your authority. He will be a father to the people living in Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I will place the key of David's house on his shoulder. No one will shut what he opens. No one will open what he shuts. I will fasten, fasten him firmly in place like a peg so that he will become a seat of honor for his clan. Now, love to talk about this a long time, but time doesn't permit me to get into the full context of this Isaiah passage. However, what we learn is that in this prophecy the word key represents authority and power over David's house that's being removed from one person, Shebna, due to his corruption, given to another, Eliakim, whom God deems as his own servant, a righteous man. And with that power and authority, no, no one will shut what he opens, no one will open what he shuts. See, the thing is that the words about opening and shutting is an expression. The expression defines the absolute nature of the power and authority this righteous man, Eliakim, will have over David's household as David's house steward, such that no one would dare to try to undo or override Eliakim's decisions. So using this prophecy as the clearly intended framework for what Yeshua has just said, Peter can be compared to Eliakim in the sense that Peter is being given the keys, the power and the authority, to God's house, the kingdom of heaven. And since the kingdom of heaven is present both in heaven and only recently on earth, then we have mention of both locations in Christ's statement. 
in what is also a cultural expression used by Yeshua to define that power and authority. And yet it's not imaginable that a human disciple of Christ could have such authority that smacks of the divine, nor that if, as some think, Peter is symbolic, a symbolic representative of the entire congregation of Christ's followers. That is, that the entire congregation would be left to wield that same immense power and authority. When later we explore Matthew 18, we're going to find that Yeshua promises the same thing to His disciples in general. So this is why some Bible scholars think that Peter represents what is most commonly called the church. So, what's the best solution to try to understand what's being communicated? Now, the disagreements by theologians over this truly startling claim are so many that I read 13 different conclusions, and I imagine there are more. 13. And I'm not sure I'm all that confident in picking one as best over the other. But here's one way that we might want to look at it. As always, context in the 30,000-foot view must be kept in mind when trying to understand the especially difficult sayings in the Bible. See, from the far view, all that has been recently happening in Matthew's Gospel, and that which has led up to Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi, is this ongoing and intensifying, intensifying con- confrontation between Yeshua and various groups of Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees over the matter of the religious authority to teach and over whose doctrine is correct. See, this debate is going to eventually lead Jesus to the execution stake. Yeshua has publicly called these religious leaders blind guides for teaching the people wrongly. Some of it unintentional in the sense they didn't know any better. Some of it intentional as a means to propagate their power and control over the people. See, the Pharisees and the scribes don't think Yeshua has the authority to teach, or certainly the power to openly challenge them. Now, if we look ahead in Matthew, this time to chapter 23, we read about another all-too-familiar exchange in Matthew 23, verses 13 to 17. But woe to you hypocritical Torah teachers and Pharisees, for you are shutting the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, neither entering yourselves nor allowing those who wish to enter to do so. Woe to you, hypocritical Torah teachers in Parashim! You go about over land and sea to make one proselyte, and then when you succeed, you make him twice as fit for Gehenom as you are." Boy, he could really lay it out, couldn't he? Woe to you, blind guides! You say, well, if someone swears by the temple, well, he's not bound by his oath. But if he swears by the gold in the temple, oh, he's bound. You blind fools. Which is more important, the gold or the temple which makes the gold holy? 
See, notice how in verse 13 of Matthew 23 that I just quoted you, the Torah teachers and the Pharisees are said by Jesus to be doing what? Shutting the doors to the kingdom of heaven for the people because they're leading them in an errant way that takes them away from the truth. And then Yeshua elaborates further in the next few verses. See, there's nothing more important to Yeshua than the kingdom of heaven. This is the good news that He brings, and He was sent by His Father to inaugurate the kingdom on earth. So while opening and shutting must be on the one hand taken as a cultural expression, at the same time there seems to be a literal aspect to it as well. So what Christ is proposing is a forced transference of power and authority from the illegitimate, although official, Jewish religious leadership, the Pharisees and the scribes, to the new legitimate Jewish leadership, meaning Peter and probably his other disciples, as legitimized by Yeshua as the Father's agent. This new leadership is to be over a reformed Jewish faith that involves trust in Christ and a new look at the Holy Scriptures. Yeshua is claiming that this transference process is underway to take the keys, to take the authority from those who currently control the Jewish religious institutions, but abuse it with teaching error filled with traditions and man-made doctrines that result in shutting the doors to the kingdom of heaven to so many, and instead handing the keys now over to Peter and to the disciples who Jesus trusts to teach the biblical truth, which effectively opens the doors to the kingdom of heaven for God worshipers. Now, I could probably go on a little longer to defend my take on what these strange words of Matthew 6.19 mean, but I think this is enough for you to chew on for now. Now, assuming that I'm correct, We can't just breeze by this without noting, noticing the obvious application. Risking that I might be misconstrued as one who's anti-church or thinks that all denominations and all pastors fit a one but less than satisfactory mold, clearly in this passage there is a warning of grave danger lurking around any Judeo-Christian religious leaders that lean towards accepting and teaching man-made synagogue or church doctrines to their people. Doctrines that seem to blatantly defy the instructions of God's Word. And while these instructions might not result in the doors to the Kingdom of Heaven being entirely shut to the believers they teach, it could well mean that those believers will fall into that unwanted category of least in the kingdom that Jesus warns about in Matthew 5, 17-19. Yeshua lived in an era when after centuries of mismanagement and corruption, the Jewish leadership of the temple and the synagogue had led the faithful so far off the rails that Christ could describe the situation as the blind following the blind, 
or here is the Jewish religious leadership effectively locking out their people from entering the kingdom of heaven. How can they do that once again? By teaching man-made doctrines as though they were God's Word and the naive people believing it. Make no mistake, we live in an alarmingly similar era. And of course, those sounding the alarm sometimes get the same treatment Jesus got, minus the crucifixion, of course. Every era and society and religion has its means of dealing harshly with its always unwelcome reformers. And that usually begins with an attempt to discredit them. When that doesn't work, the next step is to destroy them. Now, destroying a, a reformer in Christ's era often meant execution. In our era, one's life and mission can be destroyed by other means, such as lies and slander on social media. Or if one's famous enough, fake news from the large media outlets. Our government can take away our necessary tax-exempt status or even go after us personally by weaponizing the IRS or other government agencies against us. You know, there's much happening all around us right now, folks, in case you haven't noticed. Pretty much globally. And we must not disregard it as just noise. This scene at Philippi concludes with Yeshua telling His disciples they're not to tell anyone that He's the Messiah. Now, while the implication is certainly there, this to me in no way indicates that the eleven, the other eleven disciples have also adopted Peter's confession as their own. Rather, it is more likely that the notion of their Master being the Messiah, by the way, a thought that doesn't seem to have ever been entertained by any of them up until that very moment. It's not to be discussed outside their immediate inner circle. This is because not only would such a suggestion bring down even more trouble upon Jesus by the Jewish religious leadership, but also because it would immediately raise a huge red flag to Herod Antipas and to Pontius Pilate. They well understood that the Jewish people believed that the Messiah would be a political leader and a would-be king and that he would lead a full-blown military revolution to make Israel once again an independent kingdom. We'll continue with Matthew chapter 16 next time.